Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Fourteen years after her death, Octavia Butler finally made the New York Times bestseller list with Parable of the Sower, hitting number 14 of the trade fiction paperback list. This 1998 interview was first posted on Radio Walensky on December 2, 2018. Octavia Butler died at the age of 58 in 2006. At the time of her death, she'd published 16 books with another volume of uncollected stories published posthumously. The author of several acclaimed science fiction and fantasy novels, most notably Kindred and The Parable of the Sower, her reputation has only grown in the 12 years since her death. While a collection of interviews was published in 2009, very few audio conversations exist today. Richard A. Lupoff and I conducted two of those conversations. The first, early in her career in 1983, was uploaded as a Radio Walensky podcast in May of 2017. This interview, recorded in November 1998, came on the heels of the publication of Parable of the Talents, a sequel to Parable of the Sower. There's a reason people are going back to her books, and her reputation continues to soar. To call you a science fiction writer, I think, grossly understates what you do. Thank you. Uh, thank you for uh, saying that. Actually, I don't worry about labels. I was just at a signing last night in uh, Portland where someone insisted that I label myself. And I insisted that labels bore the heck out of me. So um, I realized that if I wrote a biography of my mother, somebody would put the word science fiction on it <laughs> or at least put it in that section of the store. And I'm not really trying to escape the label. It's just that um, I don't like to dicker about which ones are appropriate. The latest novel by Octavia E. Butler is Parable of the Talents, which is a sequel to Parable of the Sower. And I take it from the end of parable of the talents there is no third book this is it there is no third book about that particular person since um she's dead and i'm not giving anything away by saying that because um you know on the first page of parable of the talents that she's dead there may be more about the religion she creates a religion and it fascinates me the way religions go forward after their founders are dead and I want to perhaps go forward with the religion and with the people who attempt to fulfill the particular destiny that she designates. Parable of the Talents takes place in a future world mm -hmm. where something has happened, a, a plague, I believe, correct? No, no, no. Parable of the Sower, things have just carried on and slowly run down. There's no particular hideous disaster to account for it. A little like the Soviet Union, but since we have farther to fall, it hurts more when we hit bottom. And in Parable of the Sower, we hit bottom. 
a great many of our bad habits have come home to roost. The uh, problems we've been either ignoring or, or causing have become disasters. This is a world in which, uh, for instance, in Parable of the Talents, my main character can earn a living at one point reading, writing, and drawing for people in America because so few people are able to read and write for themselves. They, they pay her to uh, take care of forms and letters and things and to draw pictures of their children. They don't pay much, but they pay. Dick Lupoff. These parable novels, Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents, are part of a long-standing tradition in science fiction or what we sometimes call science fiction. Going back at, as far as Mary Shelley with a novel called The Last Man, people within the science fiction community where my roots grew had a, a somewhat wry and cynical saying in, in times of misfortune, science fiction said it first. But nobody was listening. Sad to say. Yeah, I, I um, have to correct people sometimes because they call the parable books prophecy. And I say, no, no, these are cautionary tales. Exactly. These are if-this-goes-on stories. And I hope they're not prophecy because I don't want to live in that world. Do you think anybody is listening? Yes, but I'm not sure that enough people are listening when the economy is doing very well. The people who are doing well as part of the economy are, of course, not going to listen to somebody saying, oh, global warming, global warming. I mean, they'll find all sorts of reasons why there's no such thing. If, uh, for instance, uh, the popularity of prisons is something that's important if you're a governor of a state and the prison guards union is supporting you, well, that's going to um, have a great deal more importance to you than, for instance, worrying about the fact that you seem to be filling the prisons much more competently than filling the schools. Those of us who write books, especially fiction, have numerous motivations, starting with the fact that we're trying to earn a living. But most of us, I think, have motives beyond earning a living. And, and, and rather than ask you a narrow, focused question, let me ask you in, in a broader sense what your motives are other than earning a living. Well, I have stories to tell. Like most of us, I assume, things catch my attention and I have the kind of imagination that won't let them alone. Now, if you're going to make up stories anyway, best earn a living from it than just get a reputation as a horrible liar or some <laughs> such. <laughs> I have always told myself stories. And uh, as soon as I found out that people could earn a living from it, back when I was 10, I knew that I wanted to. And now, happily, I do. You, you have, over the course of your career, moved publishers several times. I recall your earliest books came from Doubleday, and mm -hmm. for a while you were with Warner's, I believe. I did one book with St. Martin's as well. Right, right. And uh, I'm still with Warner in paperback. There came a time before Betsy Mitchell that they told me they didn't want to bring me out in, in hardcover, but they would bring me out as a paperback original, and I've never been a paperback original, and I, I didn't really want that to happen. So um, I went with what was then Four Walls, Eight Windows. It was two guys, and now each company is one guy. Small, independent presses, 
And I like them a lot because of the attention that they can give to the book, because of the fact that you can actually reach the person in charge and he will talk to you. When I was with St. Martin's, I never spoke to my editor. A double day, the editor was a decent human being, but I wasn't able to get any kind of advertising except the the one group ad that they did for just about every well, I guess for everybody they were doing during that period of time and I never did an author tour until I went with Four Walls Eight Windows they never assumed that my books were going to sell well enough to make it worth their while. But the question arises about two other points one is the advance the kind of money you get oh uh, I took a cut to go with a smaller company and fortunately, I was at a place where I could do that. I mean, I wasn't going to starve or anything, but um, I got paid a lot less money when I went with Four Walls, Eight Windows, and it didn't really go up when I went with uh, Seven Stories. But the thing is, I still get the same royalties, so it comes to me in the end. Most writers live fairly close to the bone. I learned a long time ago that I had better put the money away and pay myself a salary or I would not be able to function at all. What about distribution of these books? Pretty good, really. Both of them had the, uh, the same distributor, seemed to get the book around the country. I wish that there could be more advertising, but I recognize they don't have money. I'm at a point now in my career where I go around even – well, I had to kind of build this up on my own, go around speaking at colleges and, and, and uh, for other groups. That helps to publicize the books. This was something that I was doing instead of author tours because I couldn't get them. When I was finally able to go on author tours because Four Walls, Eight Windows was willing to finance it, I kept up the college speaking workshops, that kind of thing, it seems to be very much worthwhile because uh, more people find out about the book. A lot of colleges and universities and even a few high schools are using Kindred as a textbook and some of them are using Parable of the Sower and I hope eventually Parable of the Talents. Parable of the Talents is a, a very political cautionary tale. They both are. This one struck me more in the sense that the immediacy of the threat of the Christian right just oh. hits us in the mm -hmm. face. And Parable of the Talents talks about a future time. Well, Parable the of the Talents is a novel of problems. So you see all the terrible problems that have evolved. Parable of the Sower is a novel of solutions. It actually says this on the cover. I gave a talk and my editor was there and he apparently took notes. But anyway, I don't see this as a novel of the magical solution. I see it as a novel of the kinds of solutions that are likely to um, occur to people when they're frightened, when they're angry, when they're desperate. So it's a novel of dangerous solutions. And certainly the right-wing religious uh, person is one of those dangerous solutions. This Christian president backs mm -hmm. off from those who do things in his name, but it's clear he, he that he's a thug anyway. Yeah, he doesn't exactly back off. He just sort of says, well, you know, I have nothing to do with them. Um, I don't support them, uh, you know, and he lets them carry on. Well, this is no different, I think, from the Christian, um, the leaders of the Christian right now and the killing of Matthew Shepard. Ah, good thought. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One other thing that struck me 
in an interesting way is that even though the main character is black, there seems to be very little indication of outright racism in the book among the other people and that there, she comes and there, into contact. There probably would be in real life. But that wasn't what I wanted to work with here, mainly because of the religious thing. I mean, the major villain, if you want to call him that, who never really puts in an appearance. He's just this looming character who gets elected to the presidency pretty much as Hitler got elected as chancellor of Germany. He is a religious extremist. And in a way, my character is too. It's just that her religion is not hateful. Uh, she's not out to get anybody who happens to disagree with her. She hopes they'll change their minds, but she's not out to, to do anything to them. What she's out to do is to focus people away from the destructiveness and towards something that a lot of them feel is silly. But on the other hand, it's something that is such a long-term, difficult, absorbing project that chances are they'll have a lot less time to do each other in. One of the things that intrigued me, I found very thought-provoking about Parable of the Challenge and this new religion called Earthseed, mm -hmm. is that while the principles of the religion are, are very broad and inclusive and constructive, it reminded me in, in a way of Buddhism, in fact. Mm -hmm. um, Except that in Buddhism, they don't say God is change. Temporary is not the right word. Ephemeral, yes. actually. Yeah, more, more like Virtually every religion we can think of, and I don't, I don't want to point an accusatory finger at mm -hmm. any specific religion, uh, they all start with a set of noble and benevolent mm -hmm. principles. That's in a way why I want to carry on with the religion, even though I won't be carrying on with this character. I don't know how far I'll take it, but I have in my mind, in the back of my mind, I have these four books that sort of want yes. to be written, and they're four books that are, are, in a sense, the four faces of God in this religion. There is a verse that um, says within it, God is trickster, teacher, chaos. The first book would be Parable of the Trickster, that unfortunate face of God. I think in, in Christian religion, we don't pay that much attention to the trickster because we're not allowed to have lots of gods. So, um, you know, you look to other religions where there's always a trickster character, a Loki or, or, yes. or something like that, you know, and it's not Satan the devil. It's just somebody who can't quite be trusted, you know, somebody who might, might hurt you, might help you, but you don't quite know what's going to happen with him. Another aspect, well, actually, it's part of the Earthseed religion is the idea of, of getting off the earth and... Mm -hmm. Oh no! Moving, moving out among the stars. Yeah, the uh, the destiny of Earthseed is to take root among the stars. That's one of the verses. It's what she's using as this, you know, this focus. That's what I said. You know, some people think it's silly because they're trying to get enough to eat, and here she is talking about the stars. But on the other hand. She sees it as a way of focusing people, as a way of and, – and long-term focus is, is also the basis of most religions. I mean, whether you want to get to heaven before you die or afterward, you know, you still want to get to heaven of some kind. The idea of, of going to space, of spreading humankind among the stars, again, uh, we find echoes of this or we find this theme echoing from earlier works. What I'm trying to do here – 
is deal with it as the incredibly long-term and difficult project that it would be. I mean, I know before in science fiction, and I mean, I'm not the only one, but most of us have looked at it as a natural progression. Oh, of course we'll do that. Well, I don't think it's a natural progression at all. We might very well not do it just because it is so difficult, so long-term, and it's going to be so expensive. And we're not good at things like that for logical reasons. We're good at things like that for non-logical reasons, and, and religion is a non-logical reason, like the cathedrals of the Middle Ages. I mean, you know, you're, you're taking everything you've got and putting it into this very long-term difficult project, which occasionally falls on people and kills them, and all sorts of things go wrong. But it's so important to you to make this gesture to God and to, in effect, glorify your own folk, you know, that you do it. And that's the way I wanted her to focus people on thinking about interstellar travel. The argument against was used, I'm old enough to recall very clearly, in the early days of the um, uh, Apollo program when we first started talking about going to the moon. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, there were extraneous reasons then. It was part of Cold War competition. Exactly. That's the only reason I suspect that we actually did it. The argument against, as I recall, was... Look, there are hungry people right here on mm -hmm. Earth. Mm -hmm. There are people who need homes. Mm -hmm. There is medical research that needs mm -hmm. to be done. There are all sorts of things that need to be mm -hmm. done right here on Earth. Why are we putting our resources into this well, frivolous I, I, I activity? Could, I could go along with that if anybody could prove to me that $1 not spent on NASA would be spent on feeding those hungry people because chances are it wouldn't. And it's always going to be the case that, you know, ways are found to spend the money. It's just that not all the ways found are going to be good for us. Well, good for us as a species or as individuals. It's going to be good for somebody's pocket. We know that. With this, it might actually give human beings some sort of life insurance as a species. That's something else that she's thought about. Both Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents look at human beings and and a not very good light. There are a lot of bad people, particularly in Parable of the Talents. There are a lot talents. of good ones, too. Yeah, but the, the, the face of, of the monster shows oh. itself in Parable of the Talents well, very strongly. That's because one of the things, one of the answers that people find, after all, when they get frightened, when they're confused and all that, is scapegoating. And it's, it's much easier to figure out why the problem is his fault. And not yours. That way, all you have to do is kill him. And that, you don't have to create anything. You don't have to fix anything. Just kill him. I kept thinking, you know, Lauren, your protagonist in these books, she wants to expand out to the stars. And yet there's a very harrowing sequence at a Christian camp where well, Camp Christian is the name of yes. Yeah, um, where she used to live, in fact, as mm -hmm. in a community, mm -hmm. um, and a torture device called a collar. Mm -hmm. And I kept reading this and thinking, I kept, of course, thinking about concentration camp guards mm -hmm. during World War II, and I mm -hmm. kept thinking, wouldn't she ever wake up and say, well, wait a second, maybe humanity doesn't deserve the stars? No, no, because then she'd have to die. One of my inspirations for this book was my grandmother, who went through some pretty harrowing times on her own and came through them 
because of, well, two things, really. Her desire to see to it that her children had a better life and her desire to be what she thought her God wanted her to be. Her religious faith kept her going. Religious faith keeps lots of people going. When I was a kid and getting very impatient with my mother because she had this very strong, well, absolute, um, what can I call it, uh, literal religious faith, and couldn't understand why I didn't agree with her. To her, it was simple. You just have faith. That's all. And to me, it was incredibly aggravating, especially when the minister said, don't ask so many questions, which is why I have these people in their religion asking questions as part of everything. The religion was so important to her, it allowed her to go on living when she might not have otherwise. So it's, it's important in that sense. I'd like to change gears for a moment and talk about your career and what's happened with it. You burst on the scene a little over 20 years ago or about 20 years ago, wasn't it? Burst on the scene. Oh, yes. It oh. was It was um, a longer ago. Yeah, it, it was more than that actually. My first book was published in, in 76. Uh, and I, I recall Kindred making making a major splash. Um, it, Actually, it, it didn't, but thank really, you. Really? Uh, <laughs> no, it, it went in and out of print fairly quickly. It didn't make a splash until years later when Beacon picked it up. That happened partly because I won an argument with my editor. My editor wanted to call it Dana, and at that time – Historical romances were popular, and calling them by a woman's name was popular, and there was no way I wanted that book mistaken for a historical romance. That In those days, they were bodice rippers, and, you know, the gal gets raped every three pages and grows to like it, and I just didn't want anybody even to make a mistake and think that I had written one of those. So um, I held out for Kindred, and my agent backed me up. And my editor pretty much abandoned the book. I mean, it was published, but um, the push that they were going to do, they didn't. Uh, I guess the reason why I said a splash is I know that everyone I know who read it, and my book is quite dog-eared because despite it having an an autograph in that little paperback, it got passed around. Mm -hmm. It's an astonishing story. Um, Thank you. Modern black woman finds herself in the antebellum South. How Mm -hmm. does she cope? Just an extraordinary idea that I guess blew those people away and maybe it was just a matter of time before it caught on. Um, Well, also, I had to keep writing. This is something that that I've actually talked to other writers about. Um, More than once I've found a writer who said, oh, well, I had to give it up because my first book didn't make any money or in in, in the case of one writer, my first three books didn't make any money. And – my attitude is, so whose first two or three books do make money? You know, because mine sure didn't. But if you keep writing and, you know, grow in your profession, then it might possibly be to someone's advantage to bring your old books back into print. Then they make money. And I, I really haven't been able to get that across to people, but um, it, it happens to be true. Also, 20 years ago, when you when you came on the scene, uh, you were one of the few black writers writing science fiction, one mm-hmm. of the few black women writing science fiction. Where 20 years later, is the field any better integrated now than it was then? It is, but not by a great deal. There are 
well, at least there's one other black woman who's come into the field recently. That's Nalo Hopkinson with Brown Girl in the Ring. There are black women around the edges, like in horror, there is Tanana Reeve Du. And there's Jewel Gomez, who's doing a, a particular brand of, of uh, science. I guess science fantasy is a good name for it. Those labels again. You could even look at something like Beloved and say that's around the edges, even though obviously she's trying to make a point. Unfortunately, people get the idea that, no, no, if it's good, if it's trying to make a point, if it's strong, that's not science fiction. And of course, Alice Walker has gone into the fantasy realm as well. That I haven't read. Dick Lupoff. If the demographics of the science fiction writing community have changed, but not very much, what about the demographics of the reading community? Do you have a, an image of who reads Octavia Butler books? Well, I know that I have three audiences, three, um, well, three audiences and sometimes four. And they all have independent bookstores, those who manage to survive. The black audience, the science fiction audience, the feminist audience, and sometimes the New Age audience. Do they like one another? Or do they even aware of well, one another's existence? It's, it's possible to be all of those. Indeed, so, indeed. There, there's quite a bit of overlap. Some years ago, there was a controversy in the Modern Language Association over Ursula Le Guin. Mm -hmm. There were the people who said, oh, she's the best science fiction writer in the world. And there are other people who said, how she's not dare science you call fiction. her? She's good. Right. I just went through something at the uh, Great Basin Conference in, in Reno. I found myself listening to a very well-known writer explain that what he called genre fiction wasn't particularly serious because it avoided the important issues. I couldn't let that one go by, and they had a mic open for people who wanted to ask questions. So I went up and said, it seemed to me that a good story was a good story, you know, and, and there was no law that said genre fiction had to be inferior just because it chose to look at, at um, um, things, you know, in a certain way. And he said, well, yes. And I said, it, it also is a matter of fact that genre fiction gets judged by its worst elements. I mentioned Sturgeon's Law. Theodore Sturgeon is supposed to have been at a science fiction convention when a fan came up and said something like, um, but Ted, 90% of science fiction is crap. And he's supposed to have said, well, sure, but 90% of everything is crap. Obviously, that nothing else gets judged the way genre fiction whether it's – well, science fiction gets the worst of it even in genre fiction because reviewers who uh, – or review publications will publish first front page reviews of mysteries, even of horror, even of vampire stories. But the science fiction is on the back page half a dozen to a page. It, it's very odd. They've decided it's bad and that's all there is to it. But uh, what, what the um, writer – said in answer to me was, yes, but when the publication is accepted generally, then it's no longer genre fiction. I wasn't able to give him the answer that I really wanted to because it would not have um, um, been polite. Which would have been a pie in the face. <laughs> no, it would have been, that's very white of you. 
<laughs> but, you know, it's interesting there because Kindred, for instance, is not being marketed in any way, shape, or form now as a fantasy, mm-hmm. you know, as a fantasy well, novel. Kindred got about 15 rejections because nobody know what, knew what to do with it. I actually had been trying to get away from Doubleday with Kindred when I submitted it, and I had my agent send it around to other people. Well, all of whom said, nice book, but we don't know to do what to do with it. And I actually had a few reviews that said, how dare you trivialize something as important as slavery in a science fiction novel. There's no science fiction in it. She, we never know why she goes back. It, I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's <laughs> like, like I said, you know, I could write a biography of my mother, and once I've been labeled, all my stuff is labeled science fiction. But we've seen this so many times. Uh, people who say 1984 isn't science fiction. I know. I and know. Lonesome Dove isn't a Western. And even, even although this one is is perhaps the most difficult to sustain. The Maltese Falcon isn't really a a murder mystery because it's literature with a capital L. In other words, we like it, so we're taking it away from you. (laughs) Getting back to Parable of the Talents, if there's any book that Parable of the Talents could look at as a a sister volume, it might be Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. Mm -hmm. Actually, more Parable of the Sower than Talents, but yes. Sower is the initial story of this woman in her terrible trouble and, and working her way out of it. Talents is how she does even more than that. And But Talents shows that Christian America, and that's what I was, you know, the background. Oh, I see. There's a, there's I see a background, and I see uh-huh. what you're saying, too. Uh-huh. But So in terms of, of the background, Parable of the Talents, mm-hmm. in terms of mm-hmm. the foreground, Parable of the Sower. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, nobody's going to say, oh, that Margaret Atwood, she's just a science fiction writer. Well, she was smart enough not to uh, get labeled. And it's a shame. It shouldn't be that way. But unfortunately, it is. People need this shorthand method of thinking. And um, that means labeling things. The bottom line is that Octavia Butler is a writer. Like I said, I'm not going to fight with people over it. it. It takes too much energy. I don't have time. Parable of the Talents, as you say, is the second volume. Have you begun work on a sequel to this yet? Um, It's not exactly a sequel. Um, As I said, these novels focus on Earthseed. They have no characters in common with uh, Parable of the Sower or Talents, mainly because just about everybody's dead. The first one should be Parable of the Trickster. I'm a little worried about it because when I got the idea for it, Someone else came up with a book that uses the idea. I mean, obviously, there, there, there's been no we, – we, we, we couldn't possibly have gotten together. It's an idea that apparently um, appeals to people, especially right now. I had to decide whether or not to go ahead and write it. This has happened to me before. I can remember um, having a novel – uh, half done and having someone else come out with the idea so similar that I actually had to go back and change not only plot but names. At least now it's happened at the beginning so that I don't have to go through – I mean that was a very – that was a really miserable process because once you name a character, it's, it's like that character is alive and that's his or her name. And the fourth book? Trickster, teacher. Mm, Parable of the uh, trickster, parable of the teacher, that kind of, yes. So that 
When I began the first two parable books, I was reaching back into my character's religion for the reference, the title. And now I'm actually reaching into Earthseed for the reference and hoping that um, it, it will be uh, familiar enough to people so that they'll, they'll understand it. You mentioned before we went on the air that you had recently spent a week as writer-in-residence at Tulane University. Yes. Talk about that a little. It's generally running my mouth a lot. I was going to be having um, conferences with the students, and I thought the best way I could help them would be if I read some of their stories. So I tried to make it a little bit more clarion-like. I told them that if they mailed me stories ahead of time, I would go over the stories and then have conferences with the students. And that would be, I hoped, more useful. So I did that. I spoke to some writing classes. I spoke to um, a literature class or two. And oh, a feminist lit class and a black lit class. That's one or two others that I don't remember. But it was mainly speaking to classes and um, just two individual students. How different were these classes from one another? For instance, a feminist lit class, a black lit, lit class, a general lit class. Well, it would it would be mainly what they focused yeah. on. For instance, the black lit class had done Kindred. And the feminist lit class, I think they had done Dawn. So it's just their orientation, you know, the, the what they're trying to present to the students. It was nice, really, to be able to talk about Dawn because I hadn't for a while – and it was nice not to have to talk about Parable of the Sower all the way through because that's what uh, most of them had gone had read. Parable of the Talents wasn't officially out yet, but my publisher got some copies to Tulane. Because of that, they were the first to be able to read finished copies of the book. Different academic disciplines tend to become isolated from one another. And, and here we have sub-disciplines or even sub-sub-disciplines. Mm -hmm. Do they talk to each other if they pass in the corridor? I'll tell you, though, one of my favorite books of recent reading is um, uh, the Alvarez book, T-Rex and the Crater of Doom. The title gives the wrong impression. It's a good, serious piece of uh, science writing. Alvarez is a geologist, and he's one of those who confirmed the idea that an asteroid or a meteor killed off the dinosaurs. And one of the things he talks a lot about is the need for interdisciplinary communication and overlap, because one of the reasons that it was thought such a ridiculous idea that this could have happened by a lot of geologists and paleontologists was that they were missing what the astronomers and the cosmologists and the physicists had been doing, and they were even missing what the astronauts had been doing since they were not talking to each other. A lot of mistaken theory and, and, and hard feelings resulted. Is there any chance that we'll see any of your books, uh, particularly Kindred, as a film? Oh, that question. It's, it's always the one that I wish I had said something to prevent. I don't have anything to do with that. It's um, not my business. People option the book, and that's very nice. It's under option now. They've got a script. This has happened before. It's not something that I uh, lie awake nights thinking about. 
I remember um, hearing a talk given by Robert Block several years ago, and he advised us writers to take the money and run. And I think that works for option money as well as for if you actually do make a sale because it isn't ever going to be your movie even if it gets made. And I can't help wondering if one of the reasons that Beloved, for example, hasn't done that well at the box office is because it really did remain true to the book. So maybe, I don't know, maybe it can't be true to the book and still be a popular movie. Sometimes they translate better, sometimes they don't, and there's no way of knowing. The one that I mentioned, Beloved, was uh, very true to the book, and I think good, but it, it hasn't done that well. I remember oh, a line from um, William Goldman's book, Tricks of the Screen Trade. Adventures I think it in was the Screen Trade. Adventures yeah. in the Screen Trade, yes. Nobody knows nothing. Two novels, Lilith's Brood and The Fledgling, were published after the interview, and she never did get around to writing the four further books involving the Earth Seed Religion. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.